0: Do you have a beloved pet at home? Have you thought about why we humans are so drawn to these close relationships with dogs, cats, and other creatures, but maybe not to others? My name is Angela Becerra Videgar and you're listening to The Human Angle. I'm a literary and cultural scholar. And on this show, I bring you conversations with the people whose job it is to explore the human experience and our place in the world. We talk about current issues and aspects of contemporary culture that matter deeply in our everyday lives, our relationships to each other, and our histories as a diverse human community. Together, with experts in fields like literature, history, music, philosophy, and the arts, we put the human back into the humanities. My guests today are Mackenzie Cooley and Andrew Robichaud. They are both PhD candidates in history at Stanford University, and they each work to help us understand different aspects of human animal relationships. Mackenzie Cooley studies how living creatures were collected, designed, bred, and trained in Renaissance era Europe. She'll be giving us a perspective on the history of how we relate to animals that goes beyond our domesticated pets. Mackenzie is also curator of an exhibit at Stanford's Cecil H. Green Library called Beasts and Books, on view until August 22, 2015. Andrew Robichaux studies the central role of animals in 19th century urban life and follows the development of city life, animal regulation, and human-animal relationships into the 20th century. He was formerly the Thomas D. D. Fellow at Stanford's Bill Lane Center for the American West. Andrew is also the lead researcher in a digital mapping and visualization project called Animal City in the Spatial History Lab at Stanford. Thank you for being here.
1: Our pleasure. Thank you.
0: So, first off, I just want to get a handle on what the dominant role is of animals in our contemporary culture. How do we relate to animals today? Are we these kinds of stewards or caretakers? And if so, what does that say about our place in the world as humans in relation to other living creatures?
2: Well, to me, animals are everywhere in our lives. You know, we consume them. They are our companions. We imagine them in nature. And when we're trying to convey hard truths, they stand in for humanity. So animals have provided people with ways of imagining their own place in the world as well as the resources to make the world their own. We consume animal bodies for food and that's a lo- what a lot of people think of first when they come to discussions of animal rights are animals today. We wear animals and bedeck our couches in them and tie them to our feet. While we don't necessarily often think of cows and chickens and pigs consumed in this matter, after all, We call the contents of a hamburger beef, not cow. And so these animals are, I think, really alienated from the products uh, they produce for our consumption. And on the other hand, animals are our companions, right? At the same time, we share our homes and even our beds with pets. I had been reading the 2013 U.S. News and World Report, which explains that Americans spent $61 billion on their pets, their presence in our lives is supposed to be comforting, humanizing, and even therapeutic. And I guess last for me where animals are present in the world today are that they're stand-ins for humanity. When we try to talk about things that are really difficult for us, we almost always mention animals. To tell our children's stories that are filled with hard morals, we use anthropomorphized animals, animals turned human, to make that message a little bit more digestible. So think, for instance, about how much he related to Simba in The Lion King and his eternal struggles with rulership, patricide and revolution. Did you have that same reaction to Hamlet? I mean, I didn't. In fiction, animals are often humanized, little people bedecked in furry drag, a fact which has some really serious repercussions for our understanding of nature.
0: Andrew, it seems like a lot of these points that Mackenzie brought up have to do specifically or maybe especially with what has happened to the role of animals in our lives when we migrated more and more to the cities and could only interface with certain types of animals. Is that the case?
1: One of the ways in which I think about our relationships with animals are, are spatial in, way that, in the ways that you said, which is some of them we we live with in our homes and some of them we consume in a very invisible way. Um, and others we sort of desire to have invisible relationships with when we talk about the preservation of wildlife or this idea that animal, some animals should exist beyond human interest or human uh, influence. Um, I think increasingly, if we're thinking about whether we're caretakers or stewards, one thing to think about is to what extent do animals op- operate independently of human life, particularly with many of the major environmental changes that human beings have affected in the world, and especially now with climate change, whether we can actually say that any animal is beyond a human interaction um, is certainly an interesting thing. Though certainly many animals, th- their lives are much more dependent on, on human interactions than others. The pets that we have and the, the livestock that, that are raised for uh, for food and skins, and uh, those animals are, are much more controlled by people. But thinking sort of historically... One of the surprising things about um, urban development was that it did contain numerous forms of animal life in the 19th century. And coming from the 20th century, this all seems very bizarre, that you would have pigs in New York City, which Charles Dickens talked about on his visit in 1842, um, or a cattle drive through the streets of San Francisco.
0: That's hard to picture. (laughs) It is, yeah.
1: And, And some of the accounts are pretty gruesome. Incidents of children who are injured through a cattle drive or, you know, in one case, a Somebody describing a, a pig chewing on a child's foot.
0: Would the relationships we have to animals today in our homes be strange to someone mm. from the 19th century, oh, for example? No, no,
1: no question about it. The statistics uh, Mackenzie cited on um, the 60 billion dollars that we spend. Uh, in the United States alone on pets is astonishing um, and really does come out of sort of, a, a, I think, a middle class and a, a more widespread culture of, of excess or, mm-hmm. or of, of having more than enough where we can feed an animal, we can house an animal, we don't have to eat that animal. Those are all products of a certain time and place that are ours that were emerging in the 19th century um, United States. And just as it's strange for us to think back to a time when cities were diverse places, it's in fact quite logical that during the process of urbanization that you'd have people bringing domesticated animals into cities. It was a way of life that was almost universal in the 18th century that people would have domesticated animals and would have a farm. And so as cities developed in the United States, the people brought those animals with them and expected to be able to continue to have productive relationships with animals in cities. Um, And really, a lot of the development of pet culture that we see today comes out of the late 19th century when all of a sudden there are all these really actually big ideas that are connected to pet ownership. One of them is that this is going to be something that cultivates a certain sense of responsibility in children. It's, a, it's part of a, the development of an idea of childhood in the United States, that you would have a pet, that you would take care of a pet, that you would have a pet to play with.
0: I've come across a lot of perspectives on pet ownership that are now taking from different types of activism that relates to abandoned pets and animals that have been left by the wayside because people didn't really understand what it was to have another living creature in your home. So what is the impact on the side of the animals when it comes to that increase in domestication and incorporating animals into our homes? We have learned to see animals as
2: humanized in some ways and have extended a very specific understanding of personhood to individual critters. And you can definitely see the effects of, and ultimately, I think that it's you know it's complicated. I'm very glad that we're making this move toward not giving people puppies that they may or may not want, and that are likely to end up in a shelter. But so much of the discussion about animal rights and the proper treatment of animals, and also you know who is harming the uh, harming nature and who is harming animals, tends to be really um, difficult and often aimed toward people of lower socioeconomic classes you know, this has some really tricky repercussions. PETA's campaigns, as they often encourage people to consider the ways in which animals are objectified by looking at, for instance, a billboard of a beautiful woman who is often pretty pretty heteronormative or blonde, and see her body kind of filleted like a slab of beef, right? The WWF, similarly, often advertises uh, and campaigns for nature by uh, humanizing animals. You see a particular panda or a particular elephant, and that's supposed to bring you closer to that element of nature. And while I think these tactics are quite successful, they bring a whole large number of funds to those campaigns, they have kind of other repercussions, right? PETA's campaigns are often critiqued for sexism, and both uh, PETA and the WWF have the tendency to skate over human conflict and issues of socioeconomic difference, which have led to the mistreatment of these animals in the first place. And this is actually not a new phenomenon. Um, Black Beauty was initially written by Anna Sewell as a manual for groomsmen. And in the book, Sewell anthropomorphically imagined the emotions that horses might feel under human control. And so in his path from the meadow in which he had lived as a colt into the stable for his life as a carriage horse... Sewell's protagonist, Black Beauty, is really mistreated in some terrible ways. And this book was originally a call to arms for the very early animal rights movement. And it was given to stable hands and drivers in the hopes of encouraging gentler treatment. And so often the people who were brought to trial in these proceedings were not the wealthy upper classes who really wanted their horses' heads to appear in a certain way, but instead lower classes who were the ones who were driving these horses through the streets. And I think you see something really similar with who still goes to a pet store to get their puppy rather than who goes to a shelter to meet the uh, dog's parents and to choose the puppy and develop a relationship in this kind of more politically correct way. So one of the main struggles I have in thinking about the ethics of relating to animals today is by not reducing the rights of personhood to other people as we try to extend those rights to the consideration of animals' welfare.
1: To build on what, what Mackenzie was saying about black beauty, the MSPCA published black beauty, um, as you said, and they they distributed it free of charge to all these schools and these uh, stable hands and so forth. Um, the second book in the series that the MSPCA published was a book called Beautiful Joe, which was about a, a cur, which is a, a, dog, a street dog or a dog of multiple breeds. Um, so the the question of, um, of homeless domesticated pets has been pulling on heartstrings for a long time. One thing that's interesting is the development of, of animal shelters in the way that we have them now. The SPCA originally was very much in the business of killing animals. Um, killing was understood as a way of alleviating suffering. Um, so the SPCA would oper- operate pounds in different cities. And at the end of every day, they would kill or drown or uh, or electrocute or, or asphyxiate uh, hundreds of, of dogs each day. The a- animal protection groups have moved very far away from that now, and especially development of no-kill policies, I think in the 70s and 80s especially. But it's interesting that our interest in pets especially has moved away from seeing killing as a, as a way of dealing with a certain problem toward um, a re- really an anti-death uh, position.
0: While we're talking about animal rights, and also you mentioned conservation efforts, and these types of issues in our culture today, how do people like conservationists, for example, or animal rights activists, how do they get us to care about the fate of wild animals? as opposed to our pets. What about elephants and ostriches and tigers? You know, animals that are not, I mean, with some exceptions, (laughs) are not brought into our homes and that we really cannot develop close relationships with.
1: You know, I think that any of the campaigns for conservation would tell you that it's the charismatic creatures that um, certainly get... The most money and the most interest. It's hard to get people to, to care much about um, certain species of insects um, or uh, rodents. I think that for some of the more charismatic creatures, they, the wild, you know, if we were to call them wild animals, animals that are. Um, are part of our conservation policy, they've benefited extraordinarily from the spread of pets and people's capacity to care about and to love uh, little furry creatures with cute faces. Um, so conservation in some ways has benefited uh, quite a bit. In other ways, there there are interesting tensions between conservation and animal uh, welfare or animal rights in that conservationists tend to think of groups of animals? How do we protect large groups of, of a species? Um, and that quite often is very different from how you would think about how do you protect a single animal? Because um, in some cases, uh, it's beneficial for animals to become prey for the benefit of the larger group. So there's some interesting tensions between um, ideas of protecting individual animals versus groups.
2: I really am interested in that point that you brought up about... Um the love of people, of little critters with furry faces, right? And also because our relationship with so many of these creatures is so old. There is a turn in which humans begin to start seeing themselves as separate from other creatures. So one of the main takeaways I continue to come to is that We often think about animal rights as animals are separate from humans and under the control, or in this case stewardship, of humanity. And I'm increasingly convinced that whether in uh, the history and development of culture or um, in the kind of cycles of life, we resemble animals so completely. And that's a big thing for a cultural historian to say, I think. (laughs)
0: Everybody loves watching those videos of when a black bear gets into the city, right, or into some suburban neighborhood. Recently in Mountain View here in the Bay Area, there was an incident about a mountain lion, I think, who was roaming (laughs) the streets of the town. And going under people's carports, things like that. So what happens to the wild animals and the wildlife as these cities go up around them? And are there protections or rights that exist for their housing, in a way, in the middle of us thinking about how we are going to find places to live as humans?
1: Now, one interesting thing about development or suburbanization or sprawl or whatever you want to call it, is the ways in which it's not just um, impeding certain habitat, certain animals from a pre-existing habitat, um, but it's actually creating its own sort of ecology, which is to say, now in many northeastern cities, and I don't think it's quite as prominent out here, but I may be wrong, um, deer are exploding in their population because they live very well in sort of a suburban landscape. You know, I, I, I think it's really hard to see how I think it would cha- it would it would require a major shift in how people think to have a community that welcomes either coyotes or wolves or mountain lions into the same sphere as their pets and their children. And I think you know when you when you start getting into issues like that, then people do very very quickly, you know, m- make moral choices that rank one species or one being over another. It's it's hard for me to imagine that shift taking place.
2: If I were able to change education about animals in one way what i would like to do is encourage students to take the time to go and live with animals in another environment other than their homes and as you're saying you know it's it's quite odd when a bear wanders in and similarly when someone hits a moose or something but we also very rarely have any experience in knowing what happens on a farm Or in knowing what happens among a community of animals while we, outside of viewing them on the BBC's Blue Planet or something. As animals become increasingly alienated from our lives, and if this process of urbanization, which continues to separate the natural from the human, continues in the next few centuries, I do think that we ought to encourage ourselves and our children and our students to go to places where animals are kept. Go to the dairy farm and work for a day and see what logic controls the way animals in that environment are treated. And it's enormously different than the ways in which we understand our dog or our cat. Or I find that uh, students of environmental studies tend to be so savvy when it comes to understanding different animal cultures. And that's very similar to the intellectual process that one has to go through when one travels to a different country that speaks a different language and has different priorities, right? The ways in which different animal groups are organized have their own culture and their own um, kind of priorities within that. And I think if we would all in some ways step outside of the small locus of our urbanized identity to which we've become so accustomed, we would learn a great deal about the diversity of the animal planet.
0: Mackenzie, you are the curator of an exhibit at the Stanford Green Library called Beasts and Books that has to do with representations of animals in texts and in art. And so I want to give both of you a chance to talk a little bit more about the role animals have in our imaginations and in our fictions, um, you know, through art, through literature, and what else that has to do with our relationship to them or how it colors our relationship to them. I
2: think it's a great question. Clearly animals do play a considerable role in our imaginations. How many cartoons, how many stories feature really developed animal characters? And similarly, I think that the world of the imagination is not so separate from the world, uh, from the questions we ask as scientists and as humanists. Animals represented the other and the unknown. When embarking on the high seas, the explorers of early modern Europe looked at the seemingly endless oceans before them and what they saw were monsters. In 1570, an acclaimed cartographer and geographer, Ortelius, published this very famous set of world atlases. And they were extraordinary pictures of unseen places like the far east and the far north where people were rumored to walk around in the dark all the time. In his depiction of Iceland, he uh, included polar bears floating on icebergs near an exaggerated and gnarled coastline, which really reflected a mariner's view of the land. And while the land was populated by, in some ways, normal animals, cattle and elk and reindeer, the sea was just brimming with these grotesque monsters. Even today, animals continue to represent the unknown, the distorted, the frightening. Also in the Renaissance, you would have uh, kind of naturalists like Ulysses Aldrovandi, who was very interested in how people became abnormal. And the prevailing idea at the time was that if one had a malformed arm or an oddly formed head, that was not the result of some kind of uh, genetic mutation as, as we would understand it. Rather, that was the result of bestial coupling. Right? That was the result of some kind of hybridity. When a woman who was pregnant would walk down the street and a rabbit might cross her path and that might stay in her nightmares. That would influence the child she would have. That child would be likely to be born with a hair lip. So the idea of the human was a lot less limited, a lot less confined. Animals were both the other and that other that could penetrate our human world.
1: One of the more interesting pieces of of American history is the ways in which I, ideas or imaginations of animals came into conflict over the Colombian I- interaction, which is to say, the meeting of the old, you know the old world settlers with um, the American Indians who were living on the continent, and certainly the the divide between those two ideas of animals, where um, in many cases American Indians had had a, had a very different concept of animals as uh, spiritual beings. That it, it's it's very hard to sort of understand exactly how they understood the the elk that they hunted or um or the deer and they had some some understanding that they were also spiritual beings that when hunted would would return that there was some exchange there and and that came into very sharp conflict with ideas of domestication that you could have an animal and own an animal and pen it in
0: well you've both given us some really interesting great perspectives on the different aspects of our relationship to animals and not just how we treat them but also how they affect our treatment of each other and our knowledge of ourselves and our place in the world. So finally I just uh, wanted to ask you your thoughts on some steps that we can take toward having a healthy, mutually beneficial relationship to animals that lets us all have a place in the world.
1: Well, I would simply say, you know one of the, one of the driving forces in, in the work that I do is is understanding what I think is really a profound problem in our human and animal interactions, which is one of, um, of space, which is to say, we have all these interactions with animals through the money that we spend. Um, in particular through consumption, um, that we never see. And as Mackenzie said, to the extent that people have the courage to look at the relationships that they're part of, um, that are invisible in their lives but are very, is very much contingent upon their, their lives, I think that that's a good thing. And so a lot of my work is looking at the origins of the, of the sort of beginning of that shift, that spatial shift where domesticated livestock became invisible from cities. They were pushed out. It was literally a process of exclusion um, that wasn't intended to have the consequences that it did. But in many ways, uh, a lot of the laws that were passed in the nineteenth century was was forging sort of a new experience with between people and animals that's very reflective of our own. Which is to say, the development of affectionate relationships with pets, things, animals that we take care of. Which is how most of us know animals. Um, some folks know animals through hunting to some degree. Um, that's still very very popular in, in many parts of the country. Um, but I think that that sort of o- occupies a very specific sphere of leisure. And it's it's not a pervasive part of people's lives necessarily. So I think that to the extent that we can uh, transcend those spatial challenges of caring about animals that we don't see is certainly one of the biggest things we can do.
2: Andy, I loved your two of your main points, which... I think provides us a really great guide for how to go forward for really with a different uh, understanding and relationship to animals. The first, which you said, is have the courage to look. Go to places outside of your comfort zone where people relate to animals in different ways and see that logic without necessarily only assuming that it's wrong. One of the what I think the major problems with PETA's understanding of the animal rights movement is that it assumes that the only appropriate relationship to animals is one which is entirely separate and i think that by speaking to people who have other types of relationships and by really kind of getting outside of a an alienated suburbia that we can really push ourselves to reconsider what those relationships can what it can look like and so i think that assuming that we have a lot to learn about the relationships that we can have with animals and a lot to learn from farmers and people who are living in a greater wilderness. Keeping that perspective in mind, I think, is very important. We began this conversation with a discussion of stewardship and Uh, Although we often see ourselves as stewards or caretakers of the natural world, the Lorax who speaks for the trees, perhaps we ought to see ourselves as part of a very complicated um, ecosystem in which we have a new power and that power of industrialization. So I think that approaching animals through a historical perspective and seeing the diversity of relationships that we can have with different types of creatures is tremendously important to kind of step outside this um, ideology, which assumes that creatures were created for us and that we have the right to name them and to control them.
0: Mackenzie Cooley and Andrew Robichaud, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Angela Becerra-Videgar, and this has been The Human Angle. The show is recorded in the studios of KZSU Stanford and is made possible by the generous support of the Stanford Humanities Center and the Division of Literatures, Cultures, and Languages at Stanford University. The music is Look Up Often by Inquisitor. I'm the executive producer. Tom Winterbottom is the producer and co-writer and Corey Goldman is the consulting producer. Find us at humanangle.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to tune in again for the next episode of The Human Angle.